You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Now last week we began our walkthrough of a particular passage in John that contains one of the most well-known and perhaps most loved verses in all the Bible, and that is John chapter 3 and verse 16. Most of us, if not all of us, could quote that verse by heart. And we'll get to that verse next week when we get to part 3 of this conversation. A conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was sent by the rest of the Sanhedrin to question Jesus over his teachings. And so this passage represents one of many salvation discourses in John's gospel. The first and central idea that Jesus teaches in this discourse is in order for a person to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. You cannot know God, you cannot enter into heaven without being born again. And this is what Jesus teaches Nicodemus. But there is a second central idea, which is why we need to understand this conversation in three different parts. A second major idea that Jesus teaches about what it means to believe. And as an aside, it actually gives us an incredibly powerful principle of how to be godly fathers in the lives of our children and in the lives of the local church. So we're going to see that message as well as Jesus teaches us what it means to believe. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. So we begin together in John chapter 3 and verse 9. The Bible says... Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you Heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray very simply this morning that you would be lifted up in this place as your word is preached. That you would be lifted up in the reality of who you are, 
who your word declares you to be, that you would be lifted up as the very son of the living God, not just in this place and in this preaching, but in the hearts of every single person in this room. I pray that the one who has not trusted in you as Lord and Savior, the one who is running their own life and rebelling against you and doing their own thing, I pray that they would be convicted of their sin this morning, their need for a Savior, and that they would repent and believe the Gospel. The good news that Jesus saves all who come to Him by faith, believing that He died for them on the cross and rose again. And through You alone, we receive eternal life. I pray for believers all across this room that You would stir us once again with what You've done in the Gospel and that You would compel us to take this good news to the world. I pray for our children who this week have learned all about the goodness of God and that this week they've heard the Gospel. I pray that today would be the day of salvation in their hearts, that they would believe and that Holy Spirit, You would convict them of their need. And that all that happens in this place this morning would bring honor and glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we saw last week that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. If you missed last week, you'll see it there in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night. It is a detail that does not simply reflect an obscure detail in the story, but a very real reality in the life of Nicodemus that his heart, as much as he had the outward shadow of believing, or at least the, the image of believing, though he was probably in many ways morally upright, He was no doubt devout as a religious person in the society. Even with all of these outward forms of religion, inwardly, his night, his spiritual night was as dark as it could be. And the reason is he had never been born again. And as Jesus demonstrated, his belief, though it appeared to be real on the outside, was not genuine. And this is so incredibly important that we get this contrast even before we move on this morning. There is a belief that to us, and for all accounts and purposes, to the human eye, bears the resemblance of true faith. But a belief that though it bears the resemblance, is no true faith at all. Our belief cannot be evaluated on mere social constructs or religious terms. Our belief in Jesus must be evaluated purely by biblical measure. If it does not align with the Bible, it is not genuine faith. And what Jesus is showing Nicodemus is his heart is a picture of that reality. And by the way, a picture of so many in the church today who have had a religious experience, who practice some sort of religious expression like going to church or reading a Bible or listening to Christian music, talking about Jesus, praying, and yet even in all those religious experiences and expressions, it is a person who remains in spiritual darkness because 
You've never been born again. And the call of this passage, the clear command of Scripture, is to come and trust in the Jesus of the Bible. Well, in the midst of all of this, Nicodemus is incredibly confused. He's confused at what Jesus has taught about being born again and re-entering his mother's womb. In fact, he asks the question kind of twice. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He asks again. And the reason he's so confused is because he's coming to Jesus in human terms and by human ability. By somehow looking at his own life and measuring his life according to Jesus' standard, he believes that somehow he's earning his way into the kingdom of God. And this is why he seems to ask the question. But Jesus contrasts his own ability with the ability of a sovereign Savior, that of God in the flesh. Jesus didn't mean at all being born a second time only, but being born a second time in a different way altogether. Being born from above. Being born of God. And you would think that at this point Nicodemus understood what he was saying. And I think in large part he did. But even after explaining the terms to Nicodemus, he was still confused. Notice it there in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And this is where I think we get a little clearer picture of what unbelief is in the life of Nicodemus, he wasn't struggling to understand the content of what Jesus was saying. He, he understood intellectually, philosophically, what Jesus was saying. What he did not understand is how these things could be. He's struggling not to understand what Jesus is saying, but rather to understand or to believe how they could actually be true. The language here in John is some of the most simple we could ever read. I hear so many today who say, I don't understand the Bible. I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. And the reality is the Bible is in relatively plain terms. Our problem is not with what we can comprehend. Our problem is what we're willing to actually believe. And let me tell you, friend, there is a world of difference between comprehending the gospel and believing the gospel. In fact, Jesus emphasizes that the point of, of this is the, is the case in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Of course, Nicodemus understood what Jesus was saying. He had come to Jesus as the supposed knower of the law, right? Seventy men who were teaching the law every single day. They knew exactly what the Bible said. The irony, though, here is, although he knew so many things, he did not have knowledge of God. He had knowledge of religion, but he did not know God. Listen to verse 11. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive. We'll come back to that word in a moment. You might underline it. You do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There is a world of difference between comprehending the things of God 
and believing God. So what does it look like then to believe God? How do we know when faith is genuine? Well, Jesus has already in one sense answered that question, hasn't he? It means being born of God. But in Nicodemus' confusion, Jesus appeals to a story to help him understand that Nicodemus would have been incredibly familiar with. As a teacher of Israel, as a Jew, he certainly would have been familiar with the language of this story. And by the way, Jesus says this about himself and it's incredibly powerful here. It's in verse 13 and following. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this serpent and why does it matter? I want to give you this main truth and then we're going to dig it out of this story so that you see it from God's word this morning. Here it is. Jesus must be lifted up so that we can believe and have eternal life. Jesus must be lifted up so that we can believe and have eternal life. That's what we're after together this morning. So you might write that down. Let's see it together from the passage of Scripture. So Jesus says this here. And I want you to see what it means, and not just to see what it means, but to receive it. So, let's set aside verse 13 for a moment, and just mainly focus on verse 14 and following. And what it says is, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life immediately Nicodemus would have known what Jesus is talking about to the point that the story would have been painted in his mind. But for us, we come at it with a little bit of a disadvantage. So what I want you to do this morning is hold your place there in John chapter 2. I want you to turn with me back to the fourth book of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers. They're a lot longer than the New Testament books, so... You may have to turn in a little bit to your Bible, but the book of Numbers, and I want you to go with me to chapter 21. We're going to talk a little bit about chapter 20 before we get into what's here in chapter 21. But the story that Jesus is referring to is right here in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 21. And what I want to, or in chapter 21, and what I want to do this morning is kind of give you some background or a backdrop of what we're seeing and then show you what's here in chapter 21 that Jesus is referring to so that it sheds light on what we're seeing in John chapter 3. So here's the scene. The people of God have been saved or redeemed or led out of bondage from the nation of Egypt. They were there in captivity And they were led out by Moses who would lead them. You've heard the story of the Red Sea parting, leading them across dry ground. All of Pharaoh's armies armies being destroyed. You may have heard in the wilderness there receiving the law. All of God's provision for them of food and water and shelter and leadership and direction showing them where to go. 
even correction and discipline when they came off the path. This was the people of God in the wilderness. And they come toward the end of their journey. And you can expect that spending 40 years together in the wilderness got old after a few days. Can you imagine how many of you have ever been on a long vacation with your children? You get it. You get it. Moses gets a little impatient because they're not following all the things that they're supposed to be following, right? God said to Moses, you tell them to do this. Moses tells them to do this and they don't do it. They do that. And so Moses becomes impatient a little along the way until the very end when they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses is told with all of their complaining about not having anything to drink. Moses is told to speak to the rock, take your staff, speak to the rock and tell it to bring forth water and it will bring forth water. Moses took the staff in all of his frustration and he struck the rock and it brought forth water. But as a result of his unbelief, by the way, very important verse, chapter 20 and verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses was unable, watch this carefully, to enter into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven, the coming heaven, the coming eternity with Christ. He was not able to enter into the promised land. Why? Because of his unbelief. The people would... Go on to receive water, but they themselves would turn against God and all of their complaining. They would be defeated. Ultimately, coming into chapter 21, there is this <coughs> there is this picture at Mount Hor. <coughs> Verse four says, for they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. They disobey the Lord. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water and we loathe this worthless food. And the Bible says in verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And we think our God is not a consuming God, a jealous God, a just and holy God. He does not tolerate human sin. It must be punished. And just when we thought our punishment from God was difficult to bear. How could you imagine or could you imagine being in a place where the entire village became full of snakes all of a sudden, biting everybody and people dying left and right? This is no pandemic. This is an epidemic of God's hand against people. And so in verse seven, here's what it says. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And he says, they say, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. By the way, this is should be the prayer of every human heart. Because every one of us find ourselves in the position of having sinned against God and not just sinned in small ways, sinned in grievous ways. Against his person and his holiness, deserving of his wrath. And the only thing that we can do is to come before God and plead for mercy. This is who we are. And here's the key line. Verse eight. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole 
And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The person who is bit would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now you can imagine all of these people who have the venom of snakes running through their veins. Who know because of their own wickedness they could die at any moment without any anti-venom. Venom. The only way that they can be saved is if somebody does something for them. And God does. It's less about the serpent itself. It's more about the provision of God. The serpent was incapable of bringing healing at all. It was God who sent the serpent to judge his people. And it was God who provided the serpent to heal his people. It was a lack of faith that ultimately positioned them outside of God's mercy. It was a lack of faith that ultimately positioned them underneath God's judgment. They did not believe God. And yet it would be through their faith and trusting in God and God's acting on their behalf that they would be saved. This venom, this venom would be healed. The reality was the venom only represented the greater reality of their own hearts. That sin was flowing through their veins. And apart from God acting and doing something in their life, apart from God intervening, it was just simply a death notice waiting to happen. And so the story ends there. Almost with a mysterious hanging ending. If you finish up there in verse 9 and you move on, you'll see that the story just kind of moves on. Almost as if something else is Coming. So bring that back to John chapter 3. Bring that back to John chapter 3 and see what is happening here. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In essence, Nicodemus, you are just like Moses. And Aaron and the people, you are still in your unbelief. And there is a poisonous venom running through your veins that at any moment your sin might eternally destroy you if nothing changes in your life. There is death running through your veins and a death sentence upon your life. The sin that has been coursing through your veins since you were born, since the very first moment you were bitten, and really for all of humanity, since the very first moment humanity was bitten in the garden, there has been sin coursing through our bones. And this sin condemns us. The same sin that was in every man since the beginning of creation. Perversion. Hatred, jealousy, idolatry, lies, envy, 
pride, all of these things. And what Jesus says is that like the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that is Jesus, be lifted up so that whoever looks to Jesus and believes will have eternal life. Jesus is the anti-venom. He is the only one that can heal us from our sin. So the truth, Jesus must be lifted up so that we can believe and have eternal life. The question is, though, what does Jesus mean by lifted up here? The word literally means to to raise up or to exalt. It is to place in a high position To esteem or to give honor to or to draw attention to. But what is more interesting than that is the way that Jesus himself uses the term lifted up. There's three, two other places rather, three total places where this verse or this phrase is used. The first is here in John chapter 3. The second in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching the people. He was clearly talking about his Death, when he's teaching the people. But notice verse 28, John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Speaking about a future event and he's just finished teaching about his death. You might read that there in John chapter 8. But add to that one more reference in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. Similar setting, but here's what Jesus says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John tells us in verse 33 what Jesus means. Verse 33 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This isn't just the exaltation of Jesus. This isn't just putting a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. This isn't just saying you believe in Jesus or or having a a nativity or or some kind of a crucifix in your home. This isn't wearing a t-shirt about Jesus, although all of those things can and in some ways are good things, religious symbols and reminders. What Jesus means by being lifted up is being lifted up on the cross. Even as we'll see in verse 16 of this chapter next week, God gave His only Son, and He did so that He might be delivered to the cross, and in His being delivered to the cross, that those who believe in Him would not perish or not die by the bite, but live forever. The lifted up here is Jesus being lifted on the cross and it's the only hope of salvation. Just as the serpent was lifted and held up for the people to see and to believe, so Jesus, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on the cross for people to see and to believe and to be healed of the deadly poison that is our sin. He must be, must be, must be lifted up. There is no other answer. Jesus was under divine imperative. The death of Jesus was essential for eternal life. Friends, we are living in a day 
when all kinds of things are being lifted up as the antidote of our brokenness. I am deeply concerned over the direction of many of our churches, many of our groups of churches. I'm deeply concerned over the direction of our culture because in many ways we are offering social antidotes for a spiritual problem. We're lifting up all kinds of things from racial reconciliation to economic renewal to all kinds of things. I mean, the list could just go on and on and on, but none of those things are the anti-venom. Only Christ provides the anti-venom. There's only one way that our brokenness is solved. We must look to the cross of Jesus Christ and be saved. There are two things that we must nail down as a result of that truth. The first is that Jesus has been lifted up through the giving of the gospel. What Jesus speaks about in future terms, we now know in past terms. The fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again according to the scriptures that He lives forever and that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus has done what He must have done, and that is go to the cross for our sin. Make no mistake about this. This is a historical, indisputable fact. Jesus Christ died and rose again. And anyone, anyone, Who believes in Jesus will be saved. This is the truth of the Bible. Beyond that, it is a message that must be lifted up through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus has been lifted up through the giving of the gospel, but Jesus must be lifted up through the preaching of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Jesus is still in the business of saving people. Amen, church? Jesus is still saving souls. But if Jesus is going to save anyone, it will be through the same gospel that he has ever saved anyone. And the same Jesus who is lifted up on the cross must be continually lifted up in the church. We must continually raise Jesus up in order that people might know how to be saved. It's why we're even here this morning. We want you to see Jesus high and lifted up on his cross, given that your sins might be forgiven you. And it's the only hope that you have. In church, if we really believe this, we must continue to proclaim this gospel in every place that we go, not just by accident, not just when given opportunity, but with great intentionality. Because people's lives and eternity rests upon the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection for them. We need to make this gospel known. And furthermore, fathers, this must be what we do in our homes. Dads, we are so guilty of making heroes out of everything, anything and everything for our children. What is it that you exalt in your home and in your priorities? What is it that you speak of often and train your children to do? What example is it that they are following? The greatest thing you could ever do in your home is make a hero out of Jesus in your home. 
And not a hero that flies in a cape and a suit, but a hero that saves from sin. This is a message you must live and you must proclaim and you must teach to your children every single day when you rise up and when you go to bed because it is on you to raise them and nurture them, teach them, train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. If we don't do it, dads, we can't trust that anybody else will because God has given us this responsibility first. So you're lifting up Jesus in your home, the one who is your only Your children's only hope. So what happens when Jesus is lifted up? Well, in this conversation with Nicodemus, we see three things briefly this morning. Three things that happen when Jesus is lifted up. And they come from what Jesus says to Nicodemus. What Nicodemus never understood, at least in the passage, that we must grasp, that we must embrace and receive. Number one. When Jesus is lifted up, people are called to submit to his authority. When Jesus is lifted up, people are called to submit to his authority. Let me show it to you. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, first off, only God can grant eternal life, right? No man is capable of of promising eternal life. Yet, as you read this, God believing in God and the story, granting forgiveness and healing, it would seem counter what Jesus calls himself, the son of man. At first glance, the title may seem to only emphasize Jesus' humanity, but don't miss it. Put that back into the context of verse 13. John chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, no one has ascended into heaven. Let me just say that again. No one has ascended into heaven. You should underline that. So much application to modern thought in our world. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Who is that? The son of man. In other words, there's something about this son of man that's different than the other sons of men. Because this son of man is the son of God. He descended from heaven where is his home there with the father. It's a place where he ultimately came from, which means that he and the father bear the same nature, the the same essential essence. He is eternal, not part of a God, not Not a a form of God, but Jesus is fully God in the flesh, both supernatural and natural. He is equal with God, means he is the person and the provision of God. Jesus can ultimately tell heavenly things to Nicodemus because Jesus is the one who is of heaven. Jesus is God. Mark chapter 15 Verse 39, the centurion after Jesus' death, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There's something about Jesus being lifted up, the death of Jesus that proclaims Jesus is God. He's not just any person. Could it be his extreme endurance? Possibly. 
Could it be the fame of the story for 2000 years? We've told the same story over and over again, possibly. But more than all of those things, it was the witness of God in human flesh. Jesus, if he is fully God, it means he bears ultimate pervasive authority over all things. When Jesus conquered sin and death at the cross, he conquered all. He is victor. He is king over all things. He's Lord over all things. And so when Jesus is lifted up, there is no other conclusion to come to than that of the Roman centurion. Truly, this man is the son of God. And if he's the son of God, then he has authority over my life. It's tragic how many people come to the cross and say they've believed in Jesus. And yet there's been no change in their life. Jesus has not borne his lordship over every area of their life. Not saying that a person becomes perfect, but how many people trust in Jesus and yet dig their heels in and refuse to obey Jesus? The call of the crucified Christ is to come and believe and obey the gospel. It's to trust in his authority. Secondly, what happens when Jesus is lifted up? Well, people are called to receive his provision. People are called to receive his provision. Jesus didn't just go to the cross in order to assort, assert his authority, although he did that. He went to the cross in order to provide what you and I could never provide. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not notice the word receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What is Jesus doing at the cross? He's not just providing some information for us to understand. Jesus is giving a, a testimony of truth. An act, a gift that we must receive. And there is a world of difference between knowing and understanding the gospel and actually receiving the gospel. Again, the problem was not that he did not, Nicodemus did not comprehend what Jesus was saying. It was that he did not receive it or embrace it or believe it. And this is real faith. It is to receive the provision of God. When Jesus went to the cross, he was paying a penalty. And not only paying a penalty, but paying a penalty that you and I rightfully deserved. And he was doing it as a substitute for us. In order that what we deserved would be satisfied and what God desired to give could be made possible. Namely, Jesus went to the cross to make a provision, an eternal substitute for sinners. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For every act of rebellion against a holy God, Jesus received God's wrath in my place. Not so that God would somehow say, you know what, I'll give you a second chance. But so that every bit of the penalty that I deserve to pay, 
Jesus would totally satisfy. In Jesus, all of it, God's holy wrath would be satisfied so that there was nothing left but for me to receive His undying love, His affection, His grace, His mercy as a sinner. This is amazing grace. Jesus died in my place and He provided for me, provided for me, hope, both now and forevermore, because in eternal life I get to know God. My sins are eternally forgiven, and the chasm, the, the, the great distance between knowing about God and knowing God has been spanned. And I get to know Him personally. And there is no other hope. You'll remember as we just read, Moses coming to the people said, They said to him, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. No human could ever do that ultimately for us. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can intercede on behalf of his people. And he has done that at the cross. And he ever lives and intercedes for us in such a way that our sins continue to be forgiven by the blood of his cross. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. We need God to do something, and God has. He has provided His one and only Son, which leads to number three. When Jesus is lifted up, people are called to trust in His promise. When Jesus is lifted up, people are called to trust in His promise. Verse 15 says this, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is the provision of God, but he is sufficient in such a way that he actually becomes the pathway to eternal life. Not that we hope and we we kind of anticipate something might happen, but that we trust and believe and know that ultimately eternity is already written and it is sufficient for everyone who believes in him. We can't look anywhere else. We look to his promise I don't know about you, but as I look around at the world, hope, the idea of hope, good news is fleeting more and more. Would you say that that's true? And oh, what hope we've been provided in Christ. An eternal hope that is everlasting, never ends, imperishable, a crown laid up for us in glory. Oh, Christian, we have so much to look forward to. I wonder if you have that hope this morning. I wonder if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never trusted in Jesus. We want to plead with you that in just a few moments, when we stand to our feet, God begins to speak to your heart that you would step out of the place where you're, sit, where you're standing and that you would come down to this altar and you would say today, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Any of you here this morning who want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God is speaking to your heart before it's too late. You trust in him this morning with everything that you are surrendering to his authority in your life, believing and trusting in his promise today, looking to the cross, looking to Jesus high and lifted up so that you might be saved and receive eternal life with every head bowed, every eye closed all across the room. That is our time of invitation. This altar is going to be open. It's an opportunity for you to come and pray. Maybe you have other needs in your life. Other things that God is saying to your heart and you just want to come and pray about those things or 
Maybe you have need this morning to come and make some spiritual decision public. You come in just a few moments whenever we stand and sing. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, can I plead with you that this is the day of salvation in your life. That this is the day the venom is healed. That you receive salvation from your sin and trusting in Jesus today that you're born again. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to invite you to stand with me all across the room. As we begin to sing together, I want to pray. And this invitation will begin. Lord Jesus, have your way in our hearts and in this place. God, we ask that you would be honored by our lives and by the decisions that are made. Someone here today would be born again because of faith and trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. You come this morning, even as we sing. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.